The Athletic. Hello, listener. I'm Carl Anker, and welcome to another episode of Talk of Devils, the Manchester United podcast brought to you from The Athletic. That's right, friends. It's another episode where we are going to try and argue the entertainment quality of another nil-nil draw in a big game. Manchester United nil, Arsenal nil. It was somewhat entertaining, I think. To help me figure things out, as is Talk of the Devils tradition, I have two of the most talented Manchester United reporters working today. As ever, I'm joined by Laurie Whitwell, my fellow Manchester United beat writer for The Athletic. Hi, Laurie. How are you doing? I'm good, Carl. Yeah, thanks. I actually was one of the ones that kind of enjoyed the game at the Emirates and then United's under 23s warmed the heart as well with a, a good 6-3 win against Liverpool. So not the worst weekend for me. <laughs> uh, do you know, was it a Imodium or, or a Buscapan or a little bit of a Pepto-Bismol that Scott McTominay had to take? <laughs> I wish I knew, yeah. I mean, we've seen Scott McTominay play through pain before, haven't we, with his knee? Uh, I think Solskjaer suggested that he might have had, like, you know, no ligaments uh, as he continued to play on it during the last season. But I think it was obvious that he needed to come off pretty quickly, despite whatever pill it was that he popped. I hope he's okay. It's stomach cramps is what Solskjaer said. So, you know, we'll see how he is for the Southampton game. Whatever it was, he was in a bad way. He went very quickly from, oh, he needs the toilet to, ooh. <laughs> No, no, get him off. Um, anyway, some more serious things. It's time for my big intro. He is the editor of United We Stand, and he also covers Manchester United for The Athletic. He travels around the world far too much to the point where I'm wondering how many pairs of gloves he has to wear in order to be COVID-free. It's Mr. Andy Mitten. Andy, how are you? I'm fine, Carl. A little bit disheartened after the last few days of, of Manchester United. I thought that Sheffield United result was a huge disappointment. I know Laurie loves his nil-nillers, but that, that result at <laughs> Arsenal it wasn't wasn't a bad result given how bad United have been against Arsenal um, under Oli Gunnar. But that Sheffield United defeat combined with Liverpool and City winning, that that, that hurt a, a little bit. But aside from that, OK, um, there's things like the, the racism which some of the United players and their families have, have suffered, which I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss about. But... United are not in a bad position. Second in the league, not Liverpool out the FA Cup. I just hope this little blip doesn't become a longer blip and the team can start winning again. But it's going to be tough. The games are thick and fast. The games are thick and fast. By the time some of you will be listening to this podcast, Manchester United will be playing Southampton, possibly on the Tuesday. So if you're not already subscribed to The Athletic, then throughout February, you can subscribe for a special discounted price. You can enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from some of the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of our podcast and a whole bunch of other sports. It's a Super Bowl on Sunday. You might be interested in that too. All you need to do is go to athletic.com slash manunitedpod to sign up. That's theathletic.com slash manunitedpod to sign up for some of the best sports rating in the English language. Last week, Manchester United had what should have been a rather straightforward game against Sheffield United and lost 1-0. And then they went off against Arsenal in what should have been a very, very fun game. There was a little moment where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer told Marcus Rashford Cedric Suarez could not defend and all he had to do was run at him. Uh, and unfortunately, that ended up goalless. Roy Keane said Manchester United looks scared of a title race. Andy Mittens just called it a blip. Laurie, what's going on with United right now? Yeah, it's a, a frustrating one. I mean, yeah, okay. I, I kind of neglected to mention the Sheffield United result in my sort of little debrief over the weekend. It, it sort of, I've kind of banished it to the back of my mind. Um, I mean, that was one that actually made me pretty angry. Well, very frustrated because... It was an occasion where United didn't seem like they had the right application about themselves. And I, I can always accept when a United team loses despite you know uh, trying at least as hard as they can. And I think they went into that game expecting to win the game without the right uh, attitude and without the right energy. And they got 
you know, found out by a Sheffield United team that clearly aren't as bad as the table suggests. They're clearly a very limited team, but let's face it, they are a championship team pretty much. I mean, there's the, all the players that, that, that are in the squad came up through, you know, even League One, some of them. Um, and, and the additions that they've made are all players that are sort of trying to prove themselves, such as Oliver Burke and Rian Brewster. So it's not like they've, they've bought, you know, established quality into the, into the squad, but they've, they've lost a lot of games 1-0 or by, the, by one goal margins rather. And it was always going to be a, a difficult game. We saw that Man City, you know, had blown, uh, blown away teams, you know, quite recently and, and they've... They they struggled really to to beat Sheffield United one nil. It was it was a really tight game, but they they got in front early and, and they just saw it out. And I think that's perhaps what United neglected to do, and that's then cost them. It's it's taken the wind out of the sails of what we all sort of hoped and thought might be you know a, a title you know pursuit. And I think reality really it was a reality check of <laughs> this team is still you know capable of of being funky of, of doing curious things and. If Bruno Fernandes isn't totally on top form, the team suffers and there's a few players just perhaps a li- little bit under par. And I mean, but then we go, we, we look at the winning goal that Oliver Burke scored and, and my word, that, that is defending of the type that we saw in Istanbul. I would, I would nearly go as far to say because three chances to clear it, a weird um, sort of hesitancy to close him down. I mean, you've got Bruno Fernandes as the player that actually spots the fact that Oliver Burke's in sort of a five yards of space for a good few seconds and races back to close him down when everybody else sort of seems just to be uh, sort of positioned on the six-yard box waiting for the inevitable. And obviously it takes deflection and, and you know, goes in, you know, I think De Gea would have saved it, wouldn't it, if it hadn't taken the nick. But nevertheless, it was a situation that didn't need to happen and just sort of spoke of a, a slightly curious approach and attitude to the game. Mm-hmm. So, but then you know, the, as we say, the games are thick and fast. So already you, you've then got the Arsenal game, and I suppose you know, listen, I'm going to get probably pillaged of suggesting that a nil-nil isn't a bad situation again after Anfield and the Old Trafford game against Man City, where you know I quite enjoyed it um, because I think at least United are creating big chances. I mean, you look at Anfield and Pogba and Bruno, and both of those goals were nice build-up. Uh, moves where you know you, you've got the full backs coming on and, and picking out a pass and it's just ultimately that the shot isn't isn't good enough I mean Cavani just has to score that ball from Luke Shaw um, you know Solskjaer <laughs> afterwards was really interesting in you know usually managers after games are you know difficult beasts to get any kind of interesting nuggets out of that you know they don't really like to go into detail but Solskjaer I think has a you know a pretty collected mentality generally and was happy to talk about the actual technical qualities of, of, of those two finishes that Cavani missed. You know, Solskjaer knows what he's talking about in this regard. And obviously Cavani does really, but it was interesting to hear Solskjaer talk about you know, the fact that he needed to open up his, his ankle a little bit more. You know, the goal was gaping. And he, We're seeing a lot it, you know, more of that up. from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, of, recently. Of, where what, he's, the technical th- stuff, you mean? He's really describing the technical ability of, of, of the shots that go in. I remember there was after the, the victory over Fulham with a left-footed shot, he was asked about had he ever scored a goal that good? And he mentioned a little goal he scored against Lille, which I looked mm. up on YouTube and that was very interesting. Mm. Yep, he likes that as well. I think there's also been talk about him possibly being closer to Marcus Rashford as they try and look at Marcus Rashford's shooting technique. Yeah, um, I wrote a piece in The Athletic about how Rashford tends to be uh, more potent and go for power rather than placement on those shots. And apparently Solskjaer is trying to make that change a little bit. So uh, Solskjaer does like to play his cards close to his chest, but you can get him if you ask him questions about how does this person put the ball in the back of the net? 
Mm. However, I, I, <laughs> United, United aren't really putting the ball in the back of the net. Well, that's the thing. Is, is, he, is he not a good teacher then? Is that the question? I suppose we're asking ourselves that he obviously knows what's going wrong, but I think there are blink of an eye moments that there are fine margins you know if those chances if one of those chances goes in Anfield it's a 1-0 win and everyone's you know um, sort of lauding it if one of those chances goes in against Arsenal it's a 1-0 win it's a, it's a good solid away win but because they both haven't gone in you're left to think as you know Roy Keane I think we'll come on to it but Roy Keane was talking about team and Paul Scholes certainly did on Premier League productions did the team do everything they could to go and win the game you know throw men forward you know see that we're missing those chances but actually keep going forwards and and create more are are enough big chances being created I would that but the I I fall on the side of actually you know it's a it is a difficult game to go away to a team and create you know numerous big chances and I do feel sorry for Luke Shaw because he's had I think you know that that the Bruno chance, the uh, the Cavani chance, and also the Pogba one against Aston Villa. I remember that are all sort of three crosses low into the box. I think they've all got like an XG of you know sort of between 0.3 and, and I think the Cavani one against Arsenal was was 0.7. So um, right. I've been learning this recently. So for the non-stats nerds, <laughs> for the non-stats go nerds, can I go, you go on? You do it, Carl. All right, for the non-stats stats nerds, you're basically, when it's point single figure, you're basically saying how many times out of 10 you should score. Now, a penalty is always regarded as 0.7. So if Laurie says that Cavani chance was 0.7, it's basically as good as a penalty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. basically. So <laughs> seven times out of 10, your average striker scores that goal. So Cavani, you'd think, is a better than average striker. So, you know, the expectancy of of that going in was even higher, I would have said. And Fred, I think, told the story, didn't he, where he just sunk to his knees, head in hands, in shock at, at that miss. And it, and it actually, we took the replay, didn't it, to figure out exactly what had happened. And, and Leno actually, you know, puts it behind for a corner, but kind of de- deflects it slightly nearer the goal. It was, it would have been, you know, an, an awful goal for Arsenal to concede if he'd deflected it in. But, uh, but he didn't, and it's nil-nil, and we're left to wonder, you know, where that places Manchester United, because, is Liverpool obviously right up behind them now? And, you know, it, after it feels, I mean, this season is so crazy for not being able to have any uh, pervading feeling for too long. You know, it's only a week since United, you know, had a thrilling 3 2 win against Liverpool in the FA Cup. And, you know, the, the mood was excellent. And now the Sheffield United defeat was such a bad one. And, and the fact that it's only a 0 0 at Arsenal, who were without Saka, Turney, and Obama Yang, um, you're sort of feeling a little bit underwhelmed right now. Underwhelming is probably a really good way to, to describe things. I, I think if Manchester United were a serious football team, this would be a title charge. But I think you use the word funky, Andy's used the word blip. It's always been this thing in the back of quite a few fans that we're not quite sure how serious Manchester United are about this title challenge. So, Andy, where are Manchester United right now? Do you think they are title challengers or are they contenders that will probably drop out of the race sooner rather than later? I think Manchester City and Liverpool have got more experienced and squads which are used to winning titles and it looks like that they've clicked into gear. So looking at it pessimistically, I think those two will pull away. Maybe they've had their blips. United need to pull out some big performances. I still think United are a couple of players, top players short of being a team that can win the title. I think United are improving Cavani was in a good moment. We put him on the front cover of the new United We Stand, so I was cursing in more ways than one on Saturday when he missed that chance. We had uh, 
lying on there saying, give it, give it, give it, because one of the United fans has adapted the ABBA song. Give it, give it, give it to Ensign Cavani. Pass him the ball and he will score a goal. I'm never going to sing on this podcast again, I promise that. No, perfect, that Andy. No, and, you got it. You got it. That is exactly how the song goes. He is, the chances are being creating, but just with the, the Liverpool nil-nil at Anfield, I feel like if your team's going to win the league, you've got to be nicking a few of them. And maybe United have nicked them against Villa at home, Wolves at home. But the record against the top teams isn't a great one. The team are not scoring. I think United will probably finish with at least 10 points more than last season. I think the FA Cup's really important, the Europa League. I think if there's an improve, if, if there's a 10 points more than last season and United can win a cup, I think that would be seen as a success. Uh, hopes were raised when the team hit top of the table, but I didn't see anyone saying this team's going to win the league and... Manchester City's form looks really ominous at the moment. And I worry about the the psychological effect of playing so many games because a year ago, United went on a mid-season break to Marbella. And I'm probably going to ask Ollie about this. And that was really good for the team, for the team bonding. There's, there's none of that now. It's just game after game after game. And United have actually been pretty lucky with, with injuries and not having COVID affecting as many players as other clubs I can when Keane said he felt that he didn't want to win yeah I mean it's a Roy Keane statement and it does look like they're a little bit hesitant but as Laurie said the, the chances were created and Bruno had a, seemed to have done the difficult bit in the first half when he turned and hit a shot wide uh, Fred bless him taking shots and one of them nearly went within 100 yards of the goal <laughs> so there's chances that I just don't think this is a this is a top top team yet. He needs a couple of signings, a world class centre forward maybe. Oli wanted uh, Haaland for years, and he's now playing for a team who, when I looked last week, was seventh in the the Bundesliga. A, a penny is for for his fault. Same with with Jaden Sancho as well. So I'm interested to see what United do this summer. Uh, I've I've stuck up for Oli. I think he's doing a good job, but I've also said a lot of times. Good isn't great, and you've got to be great to win the league. And United today, second, yeah, that's absolute progress. But there's lots of very tough games coming up, and that Sheffield United defeat that really stung. That now you're gonna have they've, they've always happened. There's always been uh, games where United have dropped points, where they've been defeated, and I think everyone would have would have settled for where the team are right this moment. But. Southampton at Old Trafford, that was a struggle last year. You've got Chelsea away, which is always difficult. Everton, who were a, who were a decent team. And you can no longer say it's at home will be okay because the home form's more of a worry than the away form. Credit to Solskjaer, he's proving to be quite an impressive reactive manager in two senses. One, in he can react to an opponent, what they're doing and make tweaks every now and again, even though his substitute timings can be a little late. And two, I think he's reactive in terms of waiting to see which partnerships work really well on the pitch and going, oh, you two get on well. I'll make you two play this way. So what you're seeing with Paul Pogba in his new deeper position in central midfield, I think that's what you're seeing now is the wide players tend to stand wider because Oli knows Pogba can hit the passes to either man. So now United can pin back fullbacks. So that's good. And again, we always use good or funky or when we talk about Manchester United because there's still so many other strange things about this football team. The fact that Manchester United don't have a right winger and are still in second place 
is something that should be applauded and also it's slightly why Manchester United won't win the Premier League title. Probably. Probably. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's talk about Jesse Lingard. Jay Lynx has departed Manchester United going to West Ham on a loan deal until the end of the season. There's no option to buy, I believe. Um, there's a good tweet here from uh, Stephen Armour that says, Jesse Lingard got me out of my seat more than Falcao, Schweinsteiger, Di Maria, Sanchez and the Pie did collectively. Good luck to that lad. I'm going to ask you this question first, Andy, because you've spoken a lot about Jesse Lingard throughout this podcast. A good move? For him, do you think? It could be a very good move because nothing was happening for him at Manchester United and I agree with the tweet from from Steve Armstrong. And I know that David Moyes liked Jesse. I know that Jesse had offers from or, or interest from several Premier League clubs, from several clubs in Spain, from a couple of clubs in France and some of the interest was harder than others and some clubs came back when they realised that their main rivals might be speaking to him. But of all the clubs I heard him linked to, and that must be seven or eight, uh, I think West Ham is the best option. They're up in the Premier League. If he's going to play regularly for West Ham, then it could be great for him. He's he's a decent player, but his confidence has been absolutely shot at United. There's been all sorts of personal issues which haven't helped him in the background I don't think he's been managed particularly well historically I think some of his social media stuff has been the worst of any Manchester United player but underneath it all I think there's a good lad there with a good heart and he's had some great moments for Manchester United scoring cup final winning goals he's had a few purple patches where he really has looked the part but that time is not now and he had to move and if anything, he was frustrated that United wouldn't let him move, but they did do in the end. And I mean, Moyes is a, is a, is a good man. He's doing a good job at West Ham. Uh, I saw a United fan joking, let's hope Jesse plays against us in the FA Cup, which shows pretty much how far his stock has fallen among a lot of United fans. And he definitely became a scapegoat, which does nothing for his confidence. But it could work out well for all parties. If he's playing well in a good Premier League team, then straight away he's got value again because at the moment his value his stock is probably lower than it's ever been, and if he can prove that, then that's a good thing. If he can't, then the slide continues. So I think it's a it could be a good move for all. I think there's more chance Jesse Lingard's going to be good than there isn't. He is a player, yeah. even though there are some questions over his ability on the ball. I think he is one of the better. English midfielders in terms of off-the-ball movement. He's very, very good at leading the press that Oli used at the start of his interim spell as well. So I expect him to get some games for West Ham and probably be a starting option by the end of February, if not sooner. That's one lone move of a player going out. Laurie, I believe you've just written a little bit about another one leaving from the under-23 side of Manchester United. Yes, Thanks, Carl. Yeah, uh, Ted Amengi, 18-year-old centre-back, um, captain of the FA Youth Cup team. 
uh, last season, really highly rated. We, we saw him, didn't we, uh, last summer when he was brought into the first team training and he uh, made his debut against uh, Lask Lintz uh, in the home leg, um, sort of late substitute on a right back, I think it was. So not his usual position, but listen, I'm sure he was happy just to get on the pitch. And then he went over to Cologne, played in the Europa League. Uh, I'm giving him a bit a big uh, lead up here, but basically he's going on loan to Derby. Uh, I think it should be all confirmed by the time that this podcast goes out, but it was a, a kind of late move really from, uh, from them on, I think, Sunday morning was when they came really strongly and obviously Wayne Rooney being manager there tapping into his Man United connections mm-hmm. he's made noises since the tantrum embargo at Derby's been lifted that he you know has the the funds at least to um, or the wherewithal to, to go out and get some players in and I think this is a, a pretty smart move from him because you know he's wanted a centre-back Mengi will come in with a really good attitude um, he's I've spoken to him and he's, he's a very composed individual he sort of considers his words carefully and you can you can hear him on the pitch he's not had probably the best season this year with the 23s there was a, a game at Chelsea uh, where United lost 6-1 that was a, a bit of a disappointing one but I wonder if that's just one of those byproducts of this weird situation that everyone finds themselves in so he's, he's training with the first team but then has to travel separately and isn't allowed in the same dressing room as the 23s so sort of creating that easy relationship on the pitch perhaps necessarily isn't isn't too straightforward um, so I think it's a really good move for him you know it's proper you know men's football um, at a good age for him um, Derby obviously you know trying to get up the table so there's, there's stuff on the line for him to challenge for it adds edge to it you know there's, there's real competition there so I hope it goes well for him but it's, it's a good loan there was there was some other clubs in for him I think Reading were, were looking at him Quinton Fortune's there now who obviously was assistant manager at United under 23 level last season he's a coach there at first team level so he, I think he was sort of suggesting that he could be a good one for them and uh, and Plymouth I think were also in for him quite strongly so you can see that Derby's a, a, perhaps a more appealing prospect than that but um, yeah so w- wishing well uh, on his loan there if there's any Manchester United player you want to learn off you could do worse than having Wayne Rooney as your manager exactly do you think that might be a future loan destination for Manchester United players in the seasons to come? I think it would make sense, wouldn't it? Just because, you know, he can obviously call Nicky Butt, for example, you know, pretty straightforwardly. I'm sure he speaks to Ollie, uh, you know, and, and get good insight on, on different players. Um, I'm sure they will trust him knowing that he knows what it takes to become, you know, a Manchester United legend, really. So if any of those players can just tap into that a little bit, you know, to become first team players, then I'm sure United will be happy. And, and Derby in general have had a good record, I think, of taking Premier League players on loan and, and doing well. You know, you look at Mason Mount, you look at Harry Wilson, that they've had, you know, elite players, I would argue, previously, and they've done well. I think it's a club that does support youth development, both, you know, from within the club and from externally. So I think you could well see a few more players going that way. Fantastic. One thing you did mention there was about the nature of on the 23 football and how players in the first team bubble have to travel separately to on the 23 mm. games, which means they can't really travel to away games and makes things difficult. As I understand it, that is one big reason why Pelestri has departed the on the 23s on loan. He's now gone to Alaves. Please correct me if I've said that wrong. Andy, you've been on this podcast and you've spoken about how you talked to Diego Forland about Pelestri and how the young man is developing. What do you think is going to happen next with the young man? Yeah, your information is correct about being in and out of the bubble, travelling to away matches, often being by himself, not not figuring. He's a young man who wants to play football and just like Jesse Lingard. So he also had interest from lots of clubs. United wanted him to go to, to Bruges, both Palestre and, and his father. His, his father had had COVID. Uh, he wanted to go to Spain, the football there. Um 
it's probably better for him. It's funny, one of the United coaches said to me a while ago, all our young lads want to go to Spain. So maybe there's a slight <laughs> issue there because they think, oh, technically they'll just, you know, live in a beautiful city somewhere, have a bit of sun and spray the ball about and life will be wonderful. But I want to see you. I think from... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. From from his perspective, I think that La Liga is a, is a good option because he will be playing against some of the best players. And when lads like Andreas Pereira came over, he definitely benefited going to places like the Bernabeu or Cam Nou and playing against some of the best players in the world. So if he can get in an Alaves side who've started to struggle, uh, that will be a good thing. Uh, I maintained from the minute he signed that he wasn't ready for the first team, despite people saying he's going straight into the first team training environment or squad or whatever. My information was absolutely not. He's not ready for that yet. So he'll live in a, a beautiful city, Vitoria. It's the capital of the Basque country. United will play in the Basque country in a few weeks against Real Sociedad. It's a real hotbed of football. There's, there's five teams in the Basque cultural area in the top flight from a population of only 3 million people. And he'll be playing, you know, the ground is 20,000. It's empty at the moment, so it's not normal times. But Jordi Cruyff, who also played for Manchester United and Alaves, <laughs> yeah, he, had, he had a wonderful time there. Although his team surprised everyone that got to the UEFA Cup final, and they did it by going drinking until 5 o'clock every Thursday, Friday night. Um, which, when the manager found out, was absolutely disgusted and said, this is no way for professionals to be, but I'm not going to stop you doing it because you're winning every week. I don't <laughs> expect I don't expect Palestra to be uh, in the bars of the old town in, in Vitoria, but he also had a choice of where he went to. So there were two teams in La Liga and there were two teams in Spain at a, a lower level, um, or the second tier. So, you know, that, that shows how he's perceived. This, Valencia aren't coming in for him. Barcelona aren't coming in for him. He's still, he's still a kid and he's been knocked about a bit in Uruguay. But I think if he, he can play the superior technical levels of Spanish football and be playing pretty regularly, then that could be a good, a good move for him to continue his development because he's still very young. He's still very young. One thing that I did note when I watched him in some of the 23 games is he definitely has the technical ability to ride some of the more physical challenges that players try and put on him. He's got very good hips and I will one day find out a more intelligent way to put that. But from one under 23 winger who Manchester United fans are very excited about to another under 23 winger that Manchester United fans are really excited about. Amad Diallo <laughs> made his debut in the under 23s against Liverpool on the Saturday, scoring twice with a Penenka penalty on their goals as well. Laurie, I know you watched this game. You seem to really enjoy live tweeting. The game finished 6-3. Uh, was it just end-to-end madness? Yeah, I, I didn't go into it thinking I was going to start tweeting, you know, every single action because it's, you know, an under-23s game. You don't necessarily want to go through that. It, 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 not needing to, to put a spotlight on too many of these players, but the fact that Amadiallo, within 13 minutes of his debut, had nicked the ball off a Liverpool uh, centre-back and finished, you know, superbly, uh, kind of, you know, made it a bit impossible not to um, to sort of well, tweet that instance. And then, yeah, the match just kind of kept going, you know, end-to-end stuff. And United's quality, I think, in attack shone out. But yeah, Diallo was obviously someone that everybody was looking towards, see how he would cope. And the fact that he hadn't had 
any training sessions with this group of players. You know, he's obviously been in the first team bubble and, he, and he's travelled over separately and, 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 you know, start straight away on, on the right, cutting in onto his left foot. Um, I, th- I thought he did really well. Um, I think his intelligence was there to see you know the way that he used the ball once he got into it some of his passing choices were really smart and clearly he's got speed and, and you know a bit of strength to hold off you know Liverpool defenders who weren't shy about um, kicking a few United <laughs> players which is so you know I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised if he plays in another under-23s game I mean, maybe Solskjaer looks at it and thinks he's worth uh, worth a go in you know just being on the bench or around the first team picture in ooh, some of the games ooh, United. Ooh, easy. <laughs> I know I'm, I know, maybe I'm getting too excited there but I don't know the way that Solskjaer's talked about him he hasn't dampened it down he's different to Palistri you know Solskjaer never made such statements as he has done with Diallo where he talks about you know I don't think it's going to be too long before we see him in the first team so listen no pressure on the lad he's obviously 18 and he'll he'll definitely have you know ups and downs um, in his first year but I thought it was an encouraging display and and one that away at Liverpool you know they are a good team um, at that level and so I think he, he you know proved himself you know pretty admirably there he is in the first team bubble as far as i understand it so he will mostly be doing the under 23 games at home uh i've said in my q a's you should let ahmad uh figure out his home wi-fi figure out what day the bin should go out and have yeah. eric by show him where he can get his favorite takeaway and then we can start talking about him in the first team i want to try and keep it at that level uh one thing mm. i did notice was uh manchester united's academy referred to him as ahmad rather than ahmad yellow mm. um he did change his name when he was 18 so when he does make his debut and makes it clear how he likes to be referred, we will make note of that and try and do that going forward. Next section, let's get into the mailbag. Thank you so much, listeners, for getting in contact with myself, Laurie, and Andy with your burning questions about Manchester United for Talk of the Levels. Uh, we're going to start with two questions here, one from Thomas Martin, one from John Bloomhead, that asks, uh, what should the club do about racist abuse online uh, when the hierarchy makes so much of the online heft and follow a number? Surely they have a responsibility to do something more than words. For those who have been fortunate enough to not know what we're talking about. Uh, after the defeat against Sheffield United, uh, Axel Tuanzebi and Anthony Martial were both subject to racial abuse on their Instagram pages. And then after the draw against Arsenal, Marcus Rashford found himself subject to racist abuse on Instagram. Uh, Marcus Rashford doing a series of tweets saying he didn't want to share screenshots, but was a proud black man and would not be put down by the racial comments that were put forward. Uh, the racist actions were swiftly condemned by Manchester United after the Sheffield United defeat. Uh, if you are a social media user, you may have noticed that Manchester United have changed their icon to one that is all black. Players such as Harry Maguire and Scott McTominay have come swiftly to denounce the racist abuse that's happened and to support their friends Axel Twenzebi and Anthony Martial. John Bloomfield said, in light of the racist abuse, would clubs consider changing tact on social media? For example, turning off replies to push social media into change. Um, giving reference to how Kepa switches off the replies on his tweets and all of a sudden people to not respond and get abuse to him. However, as you may have seen on Twitter, you can still quote tweet. So it's not a perfect storm. I'm going to take my hat off as the host of this podcast and talk to you as a black man who works in football in regards to racist abuse. The author Tony Morrison said, the very serious function of racism is a distraction. It stops you from doing the things you want to do. Uh, It's this constant having to prove your humanity and proving your self-worth. One thing that I saw after Axel Twainzebe was racially abused was uh, a very well-meaning social media account said we needed more people in the world like Axel Twainzebe and then listed off all of Axel Twainzebe's achievements. They shouldn't have to do that. Axel Twainzebe shouldn't have to be a football player who's gone through immense hardship to captain his youth teams 
and to do amazing things for Manchester United to be worthy of dignity and respect. As far as I'm concerned, Axel Twinsday, we could never have a good game for Manchester United again. And you should never, ever, ever think it's appropriate to send him those emojis. The same thing applies for Antti Martial. The same thing applies for Marcus Rashford. The form and function of racism is to deny you personhood and to deny you from being viewed as a human being on the same level as someone like Scott McTominay or sorry, like Harry Maguire. And it was very, very nice to see Harry Maguire and Scott McTominay so quickly say, this is absolute nonsense. And if you think this is appropriate, you can sling your hook. And that's pretty much where my view is. Uh, football is the most serious, non-serious thing in the world. It can be amazing and powerful and uplifting. But if there's any point in your life where you think it is appropriate to send that form of provocation to someone because they've done something in a football game that you don't like, uh, I would sincerely hope you ask yourself why and stop. There's been conversation now about how social media companies can do better and could possibly change their verification systems. There's been a lot of conversation about ID verification systems, which I'm not a fan of. I think that opens up another can of worms. While there is problems about anonymous racist abuse, I think the most important part in that sentence is not the anonymous bit, but is the racist a bit. Uh, I'm speaking to you right now as a black football journalist who does get racially abused when Manchester United don't have a good game, when does get racially abused when people don't seem to agree with what I say about who's a better boxer box player and who's a number six and is a distraction and it's trying to stop me from doing the things I enjoy and it's not going to be solved. This very rancid tree will not be chopped down unless we take a multifaceted approach and we do things seriously. There's been some very, very good statements from Manchester United as a football club. There's been some very, very good statements from Kick It Out. This is why players will continue to take the knee and why I think taking the knee is important. I also want to see more than taking the knee. I also want to see more than just rhetoric about how we need more education uh, because simply framing this as a story of people who are educated versus uneducated makes this binary very, very difficult. There are some very educated people who want to be racist and they should also be held accountable for their opinions as well. That is my current view about Manchester United and football and racism in football. I think I can leave those questions there unless anyone has any more. I thought that was fantastic, Carl, um, and extremely well explained and, and calmly done so. I, I just wanted to ask you about the abuse that you've got then when people have disagreed with your opinion. I, I didn't realise that was the case. Am I okay to ask you about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's one of those things where Again, in the same way, I mean, one of the forms of function of racism is to deny personhood. It's to deny the fact that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of just background radiation that make it quite hard for people to believe I could be as intelligent as you can be, Laurie. And well, we, we know that's the case now, so... <laughs> you've, got a be- you've got a better turn of phrase with a sentence, I'll give you that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, very often, the number of racist abuse I get will very much be questioning my intelligence and questioning the idea that... I am in the position I am, not because of any natural talents I have, but simply because of a, a box ticking scheme or a diversity scheme. One, I'm here because I'm damn good at my job. And two, if it was a box ticking scheme, who cares? I'm going to make the best of it anyway. That's an important part, isn't it, Carl, that box ticking is such a, a, an easy throwaway uh, accusation uh, is totally inaccurate. But shouldn't we have organisations that are represented by diversity you know by by different groups and and different opinions so therefore we have a a proper worldview you know and that's I think what people look at the football industry and you look at the 
boardrooms in in uh, you know director boardrooms and and you know the governance of of certain bodies and you just sort of wonder if if it's a proper representation of you know the world first and foremost but then also just football because it's such a in football as you say the most serious uh unserious thing but it's it can bring people together can't it it can bring all different races and creeds together like no other thing so yeah that would be my thought on it but i think you've spoken incredibly well there I think during Black History Month and whatnot, The Athletic had a series where we tried to uh, talk to one black member of staff from every single football club in the Premier League. And I had a very, very good conversation with him and Tissaia, who's head of corporate at Manchester United. And he was telling me mm, when he goes yeah. off to corporate events at the, at the top European clubs, it's him and the gentleman at Arsenal. Um, forgive me, his name escapes me right now. And they are two of the only non-white people at these meetings discussing very very serious issues of finance and e-commerce at football clubs you consider the Premier League right now is 30% non-white uh, that's not representative you've got decisions being made by very powerful people organizations such as FIFA and the Premier League and the FA that do not know what racism is and they do not understand the form and function of racism and then when you describe to them what racism is they will go oh I can't imagine what that feels like the problem but I understand that it's okay to say I, don't, I can't imagine what that feels like because you're trying to put someone else's opinions and make their voices heard. But when you are in a position of power, when you are a decision maker, I need you to push past. I don't know what that feels like. I need you to start trying to understand because you have the ability to stop that from happening in future. Carl, it's really interesting to hear you speaking so well. What's it like for you going to Manchester United games, firstly, as a black football fan and secondly as a journalist because I'm seeing racism as being a, a white man and I can remember going to the games in the 80s and it was even worse in the 70s but I can remember as, as recently as 89 the, the majority of the Stretford and singing trigger, trigger, trigger to Paul Parker the brilliant QPR defender who later joined Manchester United and this wasn't a couple of people. This was clearly audible from, from a, a packed terrace. And I've known black lads go to the match for a long time. Manchester has always set itself as this tolerant immigrant city, which it is. Go back to the 13th, 14th century with the, the Flemish weavers. But I'm just reading this and repeating it. I don't know what the, the reality is, is like. What's it like for, for you? Towards the end of last season, we did a podcast about why football stadiums and football crowds can be overwhelmingly white. And I think I've spoken before about how I didn't really go to football stadiums growing up as a kid because my mum didn't really want me in danger uh, around the hooligan age of the, the remnants of it in the 90s. And my dad, being a football fan who went through the 80s, went, he didn't want his son hearing all that sort of thing. So I didn't really go to football stadiums properly with any form of real regularity until the last three or four years and now I'm going as a football journalist uh, last season was an interesting experience uh, I didn't hear any racist chanting but there were two or three times when I was walking around football stadiums and people said I looked like Deontay Wilder or I looked like Stormzy or I looked like any other black person that I don't look like but simply people giving reference uh, I twice have been confused uh, for a, a football player because they sort of see me walking around somewhere and my height and go, you can't possibly be a football journalist. If you're in a football stadium, you must be a potential signing, which again is that very interesting way we pigeonhole black people. Um, so there's that. It's really interesting you mentioned about the chance. 
So uh, while you don't might not get 50, 60 people seeing Trigger, 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 what we did get at Manchester United as recently as 2018 was a number of Manchester United fans singing about Romelu Lukaku's penis, which may sound complimentary, but the idea that Romelu Lukaku must have a very, very large appendage is rooted in a year's worth of racism in the fact that black people are, are only really valued for their bodies and their ability to provide labor rather than anything else, which again, Manchester United condemned the chant and there was a lot of discussion as to why the chant really couldn't continue. It is unfortunate that I know in every single football season I'll have, there will most likely be a moment where football racing will come up and I'll have to decide, do I want to spend a day or a day and a half being very, very exhausted by explaining what racism is again, or do I want to do what I want to do in my life? Again, the form and function of racism is a distraction. Is there a solution, Carl? There is, but it, it's a long, it's a long and very difficult process. It's, you are essentially trying to argue four or five things at once when you're talking about racism in football. And I think very much more so now because we're trying to talk about racism in football in terms of the online space. So first of all, we need to understand what is racism? What does it do? How, why, why are people racist? Then you need to understand why is that allowed to thrive? both in, in real life or in England or online. Then you need to look at what happens next. And then how you look at that, all the three of those sub-conversations can take 10, 15, 20 years. If you think about last season, we had the incident at Haringey Football Club where Kobe was called a effing black C-word by a fan. The fact that I have to say effing and C-word, but I can say the word black. Whereas it's the word black that turns that from just a mere insult into racial hatred. And most people mm. don't quite understand that. That's sort of the work you need to constantly be undoing. It's that sort of thing you need to constantly be undoing. It's the idea that, yes, some football players are a bit tired right now and aren't very skilled. So you might be able to call one of the Manchester United players as controlling the football like a donkey. But you need to understand how context can be dramatically changed when you describe it to one football player compared to another. So there are a number of football fans right now who aren't very happy with Anthony Martial. And some of them might think it's okay to call Anthony Martial a donkey. I would say calling Martial a donkey is dramatically different in its impact than, say, if you called Scott McTominay one. A lot of people don't understand that. And that's one of the very smaller ways racism can manifest. I don't know if I'll get live to see this end, but I will try... Every season and every and nearly every time, as long as I've got it in me to help educate uh, and, and help to steer this in a, in a better direction. Moving on to other questions. We've got one from Manveer at FFS Manveer, who goes, what's the situation with Sergio Romero? He's a top goalkeeper. He's a free agent in six months. Why has no one gone for him? And are the club surprised at that? Uh, Laurie, can you take care of this one? Yeah, it's a good question from Manveer. I mean, the situation is that he will see out the rest of his contract at Manchester United. Solskjaer um, hinted at that last week, although it sort of left a little bit of room for you know, maybe a late move. But um, that is the situation that he's got six months left. He did, he did have a, an extension, but obviously United are, won't be triggering that for an extra year. But there were clubs in for him. Valencia were one of the ones that you I know, think came quite strongly for him this, this window. And also Brighton 
and Arsenal, we saw the sort of Matt Ryan movement over the month and, and that was something that both clubs sort of had a look at Romero's situation, but he's on a good contract at Manchester United. So for them to, to sort of take on that would have been too much of a financial commitment, I think. And, you know, so he did have interest. You know, I think people understand that he is a good goalkeeper, even though he's not played since last summer in, in the Europa League when he was, you know, sort of surprisingly left out of the semi-final, really. And from there, it's it's not really been resolved. I think the clubs couldn't make it work. You know, he's got six months left. He's at Carrington training now. He's been away in Argentina for a little bit, but he's back and, you know, he'll, he'll be there seeing out the rest of his deal. And, you know, we'll see what happens when he's a free agent. Danny Taylor did a really good piece with Lee Grant where he interviewed him uh, as, a, as a number, you know, life as a number three. And, and Lee Grant still sort of the number three, really, with Romero not being in the Premier League or... Or, uh, or Europa League now squads but it just gave a bit of an insight into what it's like as a goalkeeper because you still are you know doing stuff around Carrington so Romero will still be you know performing his duties at Carrington he, you know he's an extremely experienced goalkeeper and can can lend advice or can you know just be a character around the place Lee Grant came across really well in this interview with Danny Taylor where he talked about you know little nuggets with trying to outfox Bruno Fernandes on penalties <laughs> and, and Juan Mata as well was another one that he said was very good at penalties uh, which we have seen I think this season at Luton hadn't we screwball into the bottom left hand corner but Lee Grant you know he's obviously been around the club for a number of uh, years now and it just it was really interesting hearing his perspective on the squad and, and what his role is so uh, I'd, I'd really thoroughly recommend anyone checking that out but that's kind of now the role for Sergio Romero for the next six months it's going to be an interesting one I would recommend that piece on Lee Grant from Daniel Taylor Lee Grant speaks Spanish a lot around Karen yeah. uh, so yeah. it, what's been a really interesting quirk is rather than Ask for David De Gea and to Sergio Romero to speak English when they're doing loads of goalkeeping drills. Lee Grant opted to learn Spanish so they could all speak what was the other goalkeeper's common tongue. Uh, gentleman comes across as a really nice bloke. I think third choice goalkeeper is a very interesting role to have, especially in these COVID times, because what normally the third choice goalkeeper used to do was not only do their goalkeeping duties, but they were really responsible for like parties and morale and keeping everyone relaxed. And if everyone's at home doing Zoom quizzes, mm. I think... The uh, quiz master might be the third choice goalkeeper. We'll figure that one out along with another bunch of uh, questions we're going to do on top of those. Hi, I'm James McNicholas, and I'm here to tell you about the latest series from Beyond the Headline, the making of Big Sam. You see, Sam Allardyce seemingly can't quit English football, and English football can't quit him. But why? Why does football keep coming back to Sam Allardyce? To answer those questions and more, you'll hear from Big Sam himself, those who have worked for him, and those who've witnessed the full Big Sam experience. You can hear it all now and ad-free via the Athletic app. Just search for Beyond the Headline now. We've got one more question here from Harps at H4RRP, who asks, uh, why do you believe Ole Gunnar Solskjaer hasn't been offered a new contract yet? There's a trend for Thomas Tuchel and Mauricio Pochettino to get 18 months, but they've just sent a new jobs are on probation periods. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has been a while. What's the plan here? Uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has now been in the job for two years, and I think it's only now we're really getting a, a feel for what his long-term plan is for this one. I'm going to throw this one to you, Andy. Why don't you think Ole's been offered a new contract yet? I still think the club are waiting. I think they don't think he'll be leaving anywhere. I think he... He loves United. He be happy to stay at United. I don't think he's got an agent agitating. I don't think there's stories being thrown out uh, to hurry United along, which has happened in previous with previous managers. And 
the club should be fair to him if they're going to let him continue. But I also think, he, while I've said he's doing a good job, it's probably better to decide that at the end of this season. And he himself has said, judge the league table at the end of the season. I think there's certain minimum requirements that need to be met. Uh, a top four finish, a cup win. Got either of those, I think he would be safe to carry on. But if United were to finish eighth, then I think the mood would change quickly. We, we, we've already seen times this season where people have been writing that his job was under threat. I don't believe his job was ever under threat. But um, I think in good time, uh, a judgment will be made. And I think you can say the same with, with Paul Pogba. Paul Pogba's not been offered any new contract yet. And he's had a good recent uh, month or two. But that's not enough in itself. So the club sometimes have been criticised for waiting too long, certainly in the case of Evander Herrera. And their agents then listened to offers from other clubs and tried to get better offers than what Manchester United were initially saying. Um, I can see both sides of it. I mean, the club, um, I, I don't think Real Madrid and Barcelona are going to go for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at the moment. Let's be honest, he hasn't won anything yet at the club. But I think his loyalties to the club, uh, I think if he continues to do a good job, he'll get offered, uh, he'll get offered a new contract. Oli's currently contracted until June 30th, 2022. There's a lot of contracts in world football that are sort of in this zone of it will end and then we'll see what happens in the Qatar World Cup and then we'll try again. Uh, Laurie, I know Oli's been asked about this recently. What do you think is going on? Yeah, he got asked about it in a press conference last week and just gave a straight up answer that there'd been no approach. And I think Andy's right in that he, he's not going to be agitating for, for a new contract. We've seen the, um, the the way this season has shifted, you know, sort of from the early part where, it, you know, the question was, is he going to get sacked? And then this long unbeaten run and, and, and title contention, is there going to be a new contract? Because I think when you get into the final... 18 months. I mean, it's, it's funny, isn't it, with managers? It, they're sort of different to players. You know, a player in this situation, that the club would be absolutely trying to get them to sign a new contract if they were, you know, pretty happy. Even if they weren't, you know, they'd probably think got to retain a transfer value. But managers, they, they don't they don't move for transfer fees. It's a weird one, even though they are ultimately the, the most important person guiding a, a team's fortunes, you know, probably more so than a player. Although I suppose, you know, Lionel Messi might have a, a different approach on that kind of thing. But yeah, so I think it is a, a relaxed situation. But, you know, with a year left, you know, we'll, we'll see because you are getting into a territory there where I remember at Arsenal, Arsene Wenger was always asked about it, you know, when the season was coming to an end and he sort of do it once everything had decided and he was kind of technically getting close to being out of contract. Um, obviously with Sir Alex, it was a, a rolling contract situation, wasn't it? Once, you know, but he had, you know, years of experience and, and, and trophies behind him. So that was, that suited both parties. So yeah, it's, it's funny how manager things work, but, you know, listen, if they go and beat Southampton Old Trafford on Tuesday night and it sort of reinvigorates the, the, the position in the league and, and then they've got Everton on Saturday and you know they go and do the same there then you know perhaps those kind of conversations will just sort of feel like they need to be had but then again if they go and lose or draw you know and, and it's kind of you know feels a bit more of a slump then they'll certainly be parked it won't be something that they'll be um, having at the top of their entry so yeah um, it is a fluctuating situation it is a fluctuating situation in the next 10 days Manchester might be playing Southampton Everton West Ham not a gauntlet but it's not going to be easy Southampton are currently waylaid by a number of injuries but 
I think Raf Hassan was a very, very good coach. And that's just not because I covered them for the whole season. We'll find out what happens in the Luke Shaw derby later on this week. But other than that, I think that's the end of Talk of Devils this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you very much, Laurie. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Andy. And thanks, everyone, for listening and sending in questions. Uh, thank you very much, Andy. Cheers, lads. And thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, and it's a thank you from me. Thank you so much for listening to Talk of the Devils. It's a Manchester United podcast brought to you from The Athletic. We'll be back sometime next week. The Athletic. <laughs>